Hello, and welcome to In Search of Black Power. I'm your host, Lawrence Grand Prix. For the past few months, we here at Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, the group that hosts the New Timbuktu Project, have been working on a report that outlines our criticism of the human social service sector. Think education, social work, anything that touches families and people in terms of trying to provide them direct services. Finally, we've been able to produce our report that we call When Baltimore Awakes an analysis of the human social service sector in Baltimore. And in the report, you'll find our criticism of the current Eurocentrism and whiteness in the human social service sector and the presentation of African-centered alternatives that we feel would be superior in producing needed services for our community. This report's pretty extensive. It's about 75 pages long. And we here at In Search of Black Power realized that we didn't want to just tell you our criticism, we want to show it to you, and we have a specific example. It's a very popular documentary around Baltimore, which we feel exemplifies perfectly what we're critiquing. So I wanted to splice together an analysis of this documentary with a talk our director of public policy, Davon Love, did on the black paper, with a talk from the author of the analysis that I just mentioned, Davon Love, our director of public policy, explaining his analysis around the human social service sector in Baltimore. And finally, I wanted to mix all that together with some specific examples of what the alternative methodologies would look like, ones that actually empower our community, as opposed to what you unfortunately see in the documentary, which is more, as opposed to what you see in this documentary, which is emblematic of the system we're trying to change. So with that, I present to you the miseducation of the boys of Baraka. In a world where hope is lost, one program stands alone. Everybody asks me, is this a school for bad children? Is this a boot camp or is this a jail? It's none of those things, okay? This is an educational opportunity, okay? So I want young men who are interested in changing their attitude, their behavior. How many people here have ever been suspended? All of you are not going to graduate from high school. That's why we have programs like Baraka, because we want to make sure that you all succeed. Youths without hope find their voice. I know I'm smart and from that realm, stupid and dumb people. But see, I can't let them get here. Let them stay out there. And I don't want my brother, my baby brother anyway, to grow up in no, in no, in no projects. We're no drug dealers. What I'm willing to do is get away from them. And the community rallies behind them. As you know, we got right here beside me. I have Brother Davon Brown. He is one of our own. And he's going to Africa 
bless him well? Because it's a blessing. Despite all the setbacks. You know what? I'm just going to keep on trying. To the day I can't try no more. And I can't just give up, you know? Some people is like that. They just give up. Mm. They just give up. I might, I might be what I want in life if I just go to the school, do what I It's the only chance I got. The power of support and guidance shines bright. Every single person is here to help you succeed. Some kids have some trouble controlling their emotions sometimes. That's what we're here for. My goal for you is that next year at this time when you're applying for high schools, you can get into any high school in Baltimore. And every single adult is on that same page with you. You have no reason to not succeed. And eventually, victory is won. I'm climbing Mount Kenya, baby. Woo! Mount Kenya, baby. Woo! This is my world. Can't y'all see it? Woo! Woo! I'm going up Mount Kenya, baby! Look how pretty it is up here. Look at it. Look at all rocky right there. See you hit the little fairy tale land. These are the boys of Paraka. This is how the makers of the documentary film, The Boys of Paraka, will want you to see their movie. Well-meaning white folks pluck scrappy young youth who've had problems but have potential nonetheless. Take them to Africa. And with the power of proper guidance and strong educational standards, raise them up and take them beyond their settings. It's in some way a throwback to what's increasingly becoming a bygone era of the archetypical white savior documentary. But in this documentary, it's important not to simply dismiss it as another film from well-meaning white folks thinking they can save black people. And in many ways, it's a perfect textual artifact of the logic of liberal patriarchal white supremacy, patronizing youth, believing that you must extract them from their pathological communities to save them. But what's the alternative? What can we do to show there is another way? We wanted to make a podcast which didn't simply do the easy thing and critique the documentary, but embed an analysis of what the alternative might look like. But first, let's examine the darker side of the logic of the Boys of Baraka documentary. Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle director of public policy, Davon Love, gave a talk explaining his critique of the human social service sector through the lens of this documentary. So in my preparation in writing this, I went back, because I had seen the Boys of Baraka documentary before, but, it was, but this was probably like 10 years ago when I saw it. 
And so I, I was like, you know, I need to go back and watch it just to get a sense of um, how accurate my, my remembering of it was. And so, so this is probably back in June or July when I went to watch it. And, I, and so I rewatched it again, and I was really disturbed. I was disturbed by the fact that it was so widely recognized and heralded. You know, you had Martin O'Malley's wife do a screening at Charles Theater, kind of hailing this documentary as something that was revelatory. And so when you actually watch it, I mean, and even from the very beginning, where it opens up, and you have black kids in East Baltimore pretending to arrest each other and shoot at each other. You have a right to remain silent. Whatever you say, or you will be used against you in a court of law. Do you understand? And you have the police helicopters kind of flying over in the night. Like, that's the way that it begins. And... And so even when it just started, I remember thinking to myself, this is probably going to be every bit as bad as, as I remember it being. I'm This is the dark side of the Boys of Veronica documentary. In order to set up the white teachers who intervene as protagonists, we have to set up a trap from which to extricate our dames in distress, the young black men who are to be saved. And that trap is their community. Even the well-meaning black teacher who you heard in the intro, seen from a different light, can be revealed to reflect many of the problematic assumptions assumed to only be held by white teachers. Before the clip I played you in the intro, here's what that teacher said in the documentary. This is something I want you all to think about, okay? As young men in Baltimore City, most of you have about three choices, okay? Three things that might happen to you by the time you turn 18. The first thing that you might get is you might get an orange jumpsuit with some nice nice bracelets that go on your arms, okay? The second one is a nice black suit with a nice brown box. Think about that one. And then the third one is you might get a nice black gown and a nice cap and a diploma in your hand. Gentlemen, I'm here today to talk to you about the Baraka School. These words reflect the assumed hopelessness of the situation of these black youth without the intervention of the white saviors. And it is frightening to hear a black teacher reflect the mindset so often assumed to only be held by racist white liberals. However, these assumptions reflect a larger trajectory of black human social service professionals isolating themselves from their communities and internalizing the pathological views of the white human social service establishment. Baltimore-based social workers and college professors Joanne and Elmer Martin wrote the book Social Work and the Black Experience, and in it they used decades of analysis working with real Baltimore youth, the same youth shown in this documentary, and give us real-life understandings 
of how the human social service system was built in Baltimore to reflect the paternalistic racism of white liberals and gives us real-life experience on how to build an alternative liberatory system. Their analysis of the history of black people and social work can be applied to all human social service spaces, including urban education, to help us understand the document to help us understand the dynamics we see at play in our communities, and in this case specifically in the Boys of Baraka documentary. Here's a passage they wrote explaining how black helping professionals adopted middle class values and began to isolate themselves from working class black communities. They write, quote, It appears that a common pattern among black social workers was that finding themselves burnt out and frustrated in trying to change the dominant system, they focused their attention on trying to change the character of the victims of the dominant system, helping them to cope better with their oppression. Even National Urban League social worker officials were consistently instructing black migrants to, quote, use the toothbrush, the hairbrush, comb, and soap and water to avoid talking loudly and boisterous laughter on streetcars and public places. There was never any hint that the black bourgeoisie had anything to learn from its newly arrived neighbors. Because social workers habitually treated black people in a pejorative, paternalistic, condemning manner with little respect, social workers during the 1960s were called all manners of unflattering names, such as overseers, colonizers, dirty workers, and oppressors. The one-way process of bourgeois imposition caused pioneering black social workers to perceive the problem of the migrants through their own middle-class lenses. Early black social workers failed to look at how the black sufferers themselves had defined and solved problems, and bought heavily into urban America's philosophy of achievement and acquisition as defined by middle-class material standards. They were beginning to judge the progress of the black migrants by those standards, disregarding even the slightest hint that the black migrants might have had criteria of their own by which to define success, progress, and worse. The social class difference between black social workers and black clients created a gulf between them that still has not been fully overcome. Joanna Elmer Martin's analysis on black social workers could easily be applied to black teachers. And the adoption of middle class values means that many teachers like those seen in the documentary can only believe that given the environment these young children are raised in, their pathology, death, or failure is inevitable because they've been unable to see the coping mechanisms, cultural technologies, and strengths embedded in these communities and only can judge them by the white middle-class values they've been taught to apply to their own communities. This is especially dangerous when teachers adopt this mindset, because so often it gets transmitted to the very youth who are experiencing these conditions. And I don't want my brother, my baby brother anyway, grow up in no, in no, in no projects. That this no young projects. person can apparently only see their community through the lens of pathology, is troubling. But beyond accepting his words at face value, again, 
Joan and Elmer Martin provide us a clue to what could be happening here. In their book, they specifically talk about the difficulty of studying working class black people in their lived environments. Because they've been so conditioned to fear researchers that they often tell them whatever they think the researcher wants to hear. In fact, they have a specific word for this called putting whitey on. And they provide analysis of working class black people intentionally mimicking whatever they think the researcher wants to hear or see as a way of protecting themselves in those situations. Quote, no matter how friendly black people may be or appear to be to white people observing them and asking them questions, these black people are highly prone to an old defensive reaction of, quote, putting whitey on until they have formed complete trust. Lebow, the name of the white researcher, was shocked to learn that the black man whom he felt to be his closest confidant, friend, and, quote, running buddy was actually, quote, running game on him and telling him just what Tally thought Lebow wanted to hear. So this presents a real question for the Boys of Paraka documentary. Though they seem to be capturing these intimate moments of black children confessing their frustration at the pathology of their community, can we trust any of the observations these so-called objective observers are making? Because by their very presence, they're prompting certain behaviors of those observed, which replicate the assumptions the documentary filmmakers are bringing to the film. However, doesn't mean there isn't much to learn from what the young people bring to their explanations of their situation in the documentary. The same young person who we just listened to lament the plight of him and his brother in the projects talks about the conditions that led him to his current state in life, specifically his relationship with his father. And your father in jail. How do you feel? My father, he shot my mother in the leg. It's sad that somebody else got to take care of me and my father can't because he in prison. 13 years. And a half, maybe. The documentary would, unfortunately, be replete with stories like this. Of terrible, deep pain, with no context, and limited analysis of the solutions. The question the documentary asks us is, don't you see how deep the pain of this young person is? Joanna Elma Martin would reframe that question to the audience. They would ask, what are the tools in the black helping tradition that people of African descent have traditionally used to cope with the reality of racism, white supremacy in America? Joanna Elmer Martin provide a specific solution in their text to the issues of isolation, family disruption, and pain that the young person in the documentary is describing. Solutions to documentary 
would unfortunately not follow. In their book, the examples they provide are the Negro spirituals and the blues. These are cultural technologies built by working class and poor black people to specifically address the isolation and frustration of incarceration, violence, and poverty. Here's what they wrote, quote, The spirituals and the blues are the voices of the black past, of the ancestors articulating their suffering, joy, and wisdom to the current generation. The spirituals and the blues encompass so broadly the philosophy, emotional expression, and social strivings of black people. Thus, when pioneering black social workers confronted the black migrants, they were confronting a people with the spirituals and the blues. Scientific and quantitative analysis and diagnosis will never fully understand the masses of black people until they understand the cultural expressions that have shaped them. The spirituals and the blues address these experiences more profoundly than any other cultural art form. They continue, the most expressive music of any given period will be an exact reflection of what the Negro himself is and the kinds of problems he suffers. The blues is an impulse to keep the painful details and episodes of a brutal experience alive, alive in one's aching consciousness, to finger its jagged grain, and to transcend it. Not by the consolation of philosophy, but by squeezing from a near-tragic, near-comic lyricism as form, the blues is an autobiographical chronicle of a personal catastrophe expressed lyrically. Spirituals in the blues cover a wide range of problems. The central, recurring, dominant, and pervasive theme of both is the problem of loss and separation. This problem of loss and separation was a core one, thus we can follow the problems throughout them. Unfortunately, this problem was not explored by other pioneering black social workers. Moreover, few of them were inclined to believe that there were ways of problem identification other than by collection of bare facts. The collection of empirical data could shed light on how many black, quote, illegitimate babies brought to a given city, how many black men were in jail, and how many black women were on welfare. And even if the collective facts dared risk disturbing the funding source, tell you how many black people were lynched. However, dry statistics on slices of black life could never give full insight into the deep emotional and psychological hurt and spiritual anguish of black people. And without such insight, social workers were not likely to ever gain a full identification of the problem. End quote. The words of Joanne and Elmer Martin here are not just an indictment on social work or the human social service sector in general, but an indictment specifically of the methodology of the Boys of Baraka documentary, attempting to quote objectively observe the young people with no context to the spiritual tools they need to process the pain these documentarians are suffering. The question is, given that this documentary was filmed in the mid-2000s, if it's no longer the spirituals or blues that's the dominant form of cultural expression, what are the technologies that the boys of Baraka service workers could have used to better help these young people? And the answer, of course, is hip hop.
the documentary The Boys of Baraka began filming. Roughly a year after, perhaps the most important hip-hop album in recent American history was released, Jay-Z's The Blueprint, that the researchers would seek to understand black pain without the cultural context that studying a text like The Blueprint would provide shows the limitations of that methodology. But I wanted to explore a specific song on the album, which I think perfectly encapsulates the message that Joanne and Elmer Martin were trying to convey. Here's a short snippet of the song, Mama Loves Me. Life up, East Trenton grew me, had me skipping school. Valencia's boyfriend, Vogel, had me making moves. Mama raised me, Papa miss you. God help me forgive him, I got some issues. Mickey cleaned my ears, Annie shampooed my hair, Eric was fly, I used to steal his gear, I was the baby boy, I could do no wrong, years going past fast, let's move along, kitchen table, that's where I hone my skills, jazz made me believe. In this song, perfectly elucidates a point that would be central to the theories of Joanne and Elmer Martin, but almost completely lacking in the Boys of Baraka documentary, the black extended family the so-called fictive kinship of people who share a bond of mutual oppression, serving as a critical multiplier of the power of community to support individuals. Joanne and Elmer Martin write, quote, The mutual caregiving or therapeutic thrust in the Black experience evolved from the extended family and was extended via fictive kinship. Black people were still confronted with a brutal racism that had myriad ways of breaking or destroying black families. They knew that they could still turn to their kin for material support and emotional therapy, but they could turn to no one else. They needed the black extended family, not the church, was the primary caregiver in the black community, and it was the most significant black institution, end quote. If the programming captured in the Boys of Baraka documentary was designed by Joanna Elmer Martin, it perhaps would have reflected the power of the black extended family. So what did the service providers in the Boys of Baraka documentary do? Would they harness this fictive kinship? Or would they promote forms of individualism and isolation, which would serve to sever the very ties that bind and prop up the black community? Hello, it's Lawrence again to talk to you about why you should become an LBS sustainer. Here on In Search of Black Power, we tried to explain how LBS might be a little bit different than other advocacy organizations or other folks doing podcasts, and I think the difference is experience. A brief story, I worked with a national think tank, and when Trump was inaugurated, they invited me to come to Washington, D.C. to be part of a protest in front of the MLK Memorial. This is some folks' dream retweets, Instagram, this incredible visual of me speaking in front of the statue of MLK. I chose instead to go to Annapolis, our state's capital, because we were lobbying on a relatively small statewide bail reform measure. But that, I think, encapsulates what LBS is trying to do differently. It's not about the visibility, it's about the impact, and we knew we had a bigger impact in Annapolis than we could in Washington, D.C. And what we're trying to bring you on In Search of Black Power is something that explains those interconnections. The activism impacts how we relate to our research, and that research impacts how we relate to our teaching. And when you become an LBS sustainer, you fund all the different branches of our organization. 
we work with youth, we do advocacy, and of course, we are building out the new Timbuktu project to continue to bring you autonomous intellectual innovation. So if this is the type of work that you feel is valuable, remember it can only exist independently with your support. So please go to lbsbaltimore slash sustain today. Thank you. Now that we have some grounding in what emancipatory practice might be in the human social service sector, we can begin to look at the interventions documented in the Boys of Baraka specifically. What exactly did these teachers do? And what specifically can we see in their work which demonstrates a methodology of white supremacist thought? Let's return to the talk given by Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle Director of Public Policy, Davon Love, as he outlines the specific examples of what he sees as the methodology supporting whiteness and find specific examples of this in the film itself. So because black pathology makes people see folks of African descent primarily through the lens of being a problem, there are ways in which the methodologies of service themselves perpetuate notions of white supremacy. And in the paper, in this section, I give three specific ways in which the methodologies in the human social service sector perpetuate white supremacy. The first is to focus on, on the individual as separate from the larger community. And so you see this, for instance, in the term like at-risk youth, right? Where the goal of programs that usually talk about at-risk youth is helping that individual young person, regardless of the condition of the larger community and the strengths of the larger community, right? And so it is only through kind of a European cultural lens that individuals even make sense outside of the collectives that they're a part of. What this means is that if you structure services based on helping that individual person, one of the impacts, and it goes back to this notion of black pathology, is that the community is understood to be an impediment to the young person, as opposed to a part of which you're building on for the young person to survive and be self-sufficient. Okay, so we have isolating the individual from the community. Now, let's listen to a specific quote from one of the teachers at the school in Kenya, shown in the Boys of Paraka. Firstly, the boys come in um, from, a pup, from the Baltimore City School System is where they come, come from, and they're mostly unsocialized, meaning that they have very little social skills, and they come in at least three to four years behind grade level academically. So by the time they leave here, they have learned many, many social skills, um, able, able to communicate well with other people and carry on conversations. Um, and they have at least gone up to grade level, if not beyond grade level, before they leave here. Ugh. Unsocialized? Really? It's not like these people were Tarzan coming from the depths of the Congo. But in many ways, that is the thought process of the liberal white supremacist mind to believe that only by extracting these youths from their communities and socializing them in the ways of the dominant world can they ever be extricated from the trap that is their communities and their pathology. The goal is to separate them from the communities that made them, quote, unsocialized, and to literally re-socialize them through the dominant lens presented by the teachers at the Baraka School, a textbook example of pathologizing black community. Let's listen to what Davon explains as the second and third examples of liberal white supremacy 
in an intellectual methodology. One term that you hear pretty consistently is the achievement gap. The logic of the achievement gap assumes the legitimacy of the metrics that are used to determine achievement. If we step outside of the metrics that are traditionally handed down for a second and just merely think about what it means for the underground economy and the networks and the science that it takes to operationalize those networks, right? That's a level of achievement in terms of using your intellect and operationalizing a system that folks create. Now, unfortunately, that's not something that you can take a test for. And so people who are highly functional and intelligent get deemed as less intelligent or not being academically successful because the things that are being measured actually don't match up to the actual social and cultural context that folks come from. When you uncritically borrow from notions like the achievement gap, you are actually perpetuating the notion that the metrics being used are legitimate measures of intellect. And if those dominant institutions that are constructing these metrics, it deems them as the ones that are superior. Because of this notion of black pathology, people don't think that there's anything from black people to learn from. Because how could we learn something from a people who haven't accomplished anything? So for the second metric, we have scientific objectivity, in quotes of course, and the third, uncritically pulling from dominant systems of evaluation and such. So there we have a reframing of the quote we've used a couple of times already around the pathologization of people in the drug game, showing them to have certain skills as opposed to being purely pathological. Of course, we also, in the previous clip, had analysis of the so-called achievement gap, with the speaker telling us the youth were quote-unquote three to four years behind and ended the year a year or two years ahead of where they were coming in. Now, fun fact, the youth were only in Africa for two years, so they're essentially giving them credit on doing nothing but what they were supposed to do, which is advance them two years ahead of grade level. But the very concept of grade level and average and promoting test scores is exactly what we must critique. These metrics ignore the skills young black people develop in developing their extended family networks of their community. You can't test how effectively young people navigate their communities to survive on a standardized test. You can only evaluate what the dominant system views as worthy knowledge. By attempting to inculcate these young people deeper into that system of testing and Eurocentric metrics, the teachers of the Baraka school, by definition, are isolating them from the knowledges of how to engage their community, which are necessary for the survival and thriving of these people as members of the larger community. The school can only promote them as individuals seeking to extract themselves from their community, an inherently anti-Black methodology. But let's listen to one final comment from the teachers of the Boys of Baraka School, in which they try to engage the youth about a cultural conversation of what it I means to be in Africa. We ever had, I asked you guys what you thought about living in Africa, and I'm curious to see how your ideas might have changed. Davon, what you said has always stuck with me because you said that you were happy to be around people that were just like you, people that were black and poor. That's what you said. <laughs> you feel somehow more at home or less at home here? Less at home. Less at home, why? Because I don't got no chicken strips. <laughs> so we know that the people out here 
don't always have the food that we have and they don't have the money that we have. You know, they seem to be dying more frequently than we do. But when you walk through the village, do you see people that are defeated? Do you see people that are just sad and crying all the time? The simplistic and caricatured way in which the teachers talk to the young people about being in Africa is as emblematic as anything in the film of the reality that these teachers are simply not qualified to work with black youth in this way. In When Baltimore Awakes, Davon Love writes on the teachers at the Baraka School through the lens of culturally competent pedagogy, revealing their woeful limitations. Quote, It was astonishing to watch in the film the ignorance and mediocrity of the leadership of the Baraka School. The white teachers and administrators of the school demonstrate no rigorous knowledge or apparent expertise in the history, conditions, or culture which the students come from. It is as if professing to care about the boys is enough to justify allowing someone to be an important part of the socialization of these youths. African Center scholar Asa Hillier writes, quote, Deficient overall criteria are followed by deficient teacher education curricula with foundations coursework in psychology, anthropology, sociology, history. They're essentially devoid of meaningful materials about African people. It borders on professional malpractice to continue to offer teacher training that's unaffected by the academic knowledge base around African people, end quote. Back to Davon. Using Hilliard's analysis in this quotation, the leadership and instructors at the Baraka School were engaged in professional malpractice. There was no information presented that demonstrated an in-depth knowledge about the history and culture of black people. The distorted and defamatory information about African people that Hilliard is referencing produces the societal belief in notions of black inferiority. Although there is an increase in the conversation about institutional racism in mainstream elements of this sector, this progress is being nullified by white institutions that will talk about racism but will maintain the same belief in notions of black inferiority and maintain the same institutional arrangement where black people are dependent on white-led and controlled institutions for their benevolence, end quote. Simply watching this documentary, you wouldn't know which African country these young people have been taken to. It is Kenya. You wouldn't know that the land that they're on was actually owned by a white businessman and was not an extension of the indigenous Kenyan community. You wouldn't even know the music of the country as the primary music they use is actually from Mali, thousands of miles to the west of Kenya and not indigenous Kenyan music. It is one of the sons of the famous Malayan musician Ali Fakatore, which makes about as much sense as using New Orleans jazz to do a documentary about Baltimore, but I digress. These stereotypical assumptions around African people, they're smiling, they're happy, they have community. These are all examples specifically of the inability to understand the specifics of African culture that Davon is talking about. The implications of this are profound as they limit the ability for the viewer to expand their frame of reference to African people having solutions. There is a model of a small airplane glider 2,300 years ago. The Cairo Historical Museum put the remains that they found in the section for birds. 
and they put it in that section because for them it's like it's impossible that they would have done aerospace 2300 years ago but just the inability to believe that Africans could produce such high levels of technology and it doesn't require any ill will in fact if you've never been exposed to these kinds of ideas and examples of African greatness and you see mostly images of black pathology the notion of white supremacy and black inferiority is a rational belief The example of the early attempt at a glider shows the ability to produce complex technologies to solve problems by African peoples. Even this film, with its assumptive logic of black inferiority, captures some of the cultural technologies used by people of African descent to address their own problems. The other thing that I noticed, there was, and I talk about this in the paper, that scene with the boys in a circle... And the way that it was, it was shot in such a way where the boys in the circle communing with each other was shot as if it was an example of disruption. No, I just put this right now. Don't try to tell me what I did. I put this right now. Give me an O. Oh, give me an O. Oh. Please tell me you got O. Oh. No. Oh, you must be. Yo, look at Right, an example of their bad behavior. And for me, I felt like that was an opportunity to really show like they were able to build a community amongst themselves and commune under those kinds of circumstances. And so for me, it, it just demonstrates the, the inability of folks who've only been exposed to notions of pathology to look at things that may be examples of strength in the community and not have the ability to see it. And it plays itself out, particularly in the way that um, social workers and other professionals structure their programming. So if you think of, if, if you only understand black folks as pathological, then you're going to structure services that is based more on managing dysfunction than actual empowerment. Seeing these youth in a circle, finding ways to make community with each other being pathologized, leads us back to the question of how can we find emancipatory solutions to these problems. And again, we have a specific example provided by Joanne and Martin Elmer with a specific discussion of the power of the circle as a cultural technology people of African descent have used for generations to address the legacy of trauma and separation within the black community. In their text, they write of the history of circle ceremonies in African societies to promote an egalitarian form of mourning and connection amongst African peoples, which would turn in the Americas to something called the Ring Shout, a historical tool used by people of African descent in America to celebrate each other, to mourn those they've lost, and build communities in the face of oppression. Joanne and Martin Elmer write, quote, The circle ceremonies of Western African societies, where most African slaves originated, were used to carry out important group functions such as weddings, communion with ancestors, and most importantly, the burial ritual. The circle symbolized the unbroken unity of birth, life, and death, and functioned to maintain group solidarity and cohesiveness. The slaves called the circle ceremony the, quote, ring shout. The ring shout was a religious ceremony in which they gathered at the gravesite of their dead, and other clandestine places formed a ring and moved counterclockwise, calling on God and the ancestral spirits, danced, 
sang, moaned, and shouted out their misery, pain, and grief. During the ring shout ceremony, it did not matter what tribe or ethnic or national group slaves had come from in Africa, because the circle ceremony was such a prominent feature of African culture, the ring shout was a religious practice with which most African people could identify. Slaves did not have many options in respect to their reactions to slavery. It was only natural that they would band together for group solidarity and survive. It was also natural that the black extended family on the slave plantation would become the model for group solidarity and oneness. Slaves formed tight-knit, active kinship ties and referred to each other as brother, sister, auntie, uncle, and granny, whether they related by blood or not. These ties were cemented by social obligations and mutual reciprocity. They continue. Slaves held in high regard black people who were able to maintain close, lasting, and mutually rewarding ties to loved ones. They had high regard for black people who identified with the suffering of other black people, sought to relieve it, and sought to reinforce the sufferer that a better day was coming. The ring shout, the spirituals, and the group identification and oneness helped them overcome the self-hating psychology of cultural paranoia directed against black people and help them develop an ability to mourn. They conclude, Ring shouts gave way to the institutionalized black church. The black people did not give up their mourning work. Instead of giving up their mourning work, they took it a step further and institutionalized it in the churches, their extended families, and even their schools. Black people after emancipation knew that mourning work was still necessary not only to promote group solidarity and to provide group therapy, but to combat spiritually and emotionally the genocidal acts of aggression waged by white society against black people. End quote. Given the depths of the historical knowledge provided by Joanne and Elmer Martin, it's important to remember that these aren't just historical tidbits that they're providing. These are reflections of a methodology that they applied to years and years of teaching you from Baltimore City, the same use featured in the documentary. In their book, they provide a three-step methodology for providing services reflecting the Black helping tradition, what they call moaning, mourning, and mourning. Moaning, as it says, is being willing to address the pain of separation and loss collectively by African people. Mourning, that's mourning with a U, is being able to grieve productively with your community and Mourning, that is M-O-R-N-I-N-G, reflects the idea that joy comes in the morning and relates the people going through the process with a vision of changing their society collectively to make life better for themselves and for generations to come. This is a technique that they have used specifically with students at a local historically black college here in Baltimore. In their text, they reflect on the student's use of none other than, once again, hip-hop to bring the lessons of the spirituals and the blues into the 21st century. Joanna Elmer Martin talk about using classroom spaces as liberatory healing spaces with young people working through histories of trauma with their parents collectively, forming support circles where both men and women effectively find ways to give each other physical and material, psychological and spiritual support as they go through a process of healing and analyzing 
the conditions of violence that they've experienced, the losses that they've experienced, and linking these experiences to larger structural issues of white supremacy. The goal is not to solve white supremacy in one semester, but to provide young people with a spiritual, psychological, and material toolkit to be able to apply the lessons of ancestors who had used these technologies throughout their sojourn here in America to address the specific problems these youth were facing in their lives in order to effectively allow them to transition out of college and into an adult world where they could better serve their community. Again, if only those at the Baraka school had known about this work, or if they'd known about it, had done the work to study it and apply it. Because the solutions the Baraka school presents are far from those of Joanna Elmer Martin, and in fact lead to the tragic conclusion of the Boys of Baraka documentary. In the documentary, we find out that due to instability in Kenya, the Baraka school was shut down. The documentarians follow young people as they spend summers in Baltimore, reflecting on the community they had so desperately tried to leave behind. I stay in the house most of the time. Not in front of none of these boys. Let's look at it. The drug dealer. Coke, dope, weed. They troublemakers, I'll tell you that much. Here we see the failings of the Baraka School brought down in its most clear material instantiation. This young person had learned to pathologize the young people he saw on the corner. The extended family networks were severed by believing you had to fly a young black kid to Africa to learn from white teachers, of course, about how to survive and transcend Baltimore, separated from his community and no longer having access to his white saviors. This young person is stranded without the tools he needs to navigate his community. But a more prescient example of the dangers of the Boys of Baraka methodology is shown when they reveal the news that the school will not be reopening to the parents of the kids who have been sent there. At the closing of the embassy, uh, I was informed that we will not be recruiting new students for the Baraka school. We will not be recruiting new staff, and the operation of the school right now is suspended. If the school remains suspended, what are we to do as parents and children that have spent a year there mm -hmm. to do for the eighth grade? Right. I know my son, just from my experience with the program, Davon has come from being satisfactory to being on a dean's list. What are we going to do if it's been suspended? What would we do for the eighth right. grade? Will they be able to go to the eighth grade? 
If they have to stay here in Baltimore, they will be going back to their zone schools. And at Lombard, right. Devon was failing. I can't take Devon from there and put him in a public school here. I can't do that. I can't do that. He's not going up to the police. I'm not sending him back into no Calton. No. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. know, there's a different kind yeah. They're most likely to get killed here in Baltimore. Right on the corner. On the corner. Then they, they would over there. Yeah. 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 My son is not going to be the next statistic that's going to be out here. My child is going to make, he's going to, they're not going to send my child back to Calvin because that's his zone. If Baraka is going to let him down in. It's important to understand the political impact of what's happening here. These parents are being told that their kids must return to the local public schools in Baltimore. They're simply apoplectic. They refuse to agree to allow this to happen. As opposed to forming a political movement collectively to improve the public schools for all children, these parents had fundamentally committed to extracting their young people from these public schools, essentially adopting the mindset of the teacher we heard at the beginning of the podcast, that to be a young black man in Baltimore without special intervention is an inevitable trip to disaster. Unbelievably, these black working class parents have all essentially turned into charter school advocates, believing that only special interventions by people with specialized knowledge, distinct from the public sphere, could hold any salvation for their children. Their rage is no longer directed at the system which underfunds, undermines, and miseducates their use. It's directed at the public schools, which are reflections of that larger structural violence, not the actual institutions that produce the violence in the first place. The Baraka School has taught young people many things, but better than anything else, it seems to have taught the parents and the kids to blame the victims. It's even taught the kids to blame themselves as they wonder what it is about them that caused the program to be canceled and wonder what alternatives could exist for this program to be restored. I don't believe they did this. Why did they have to do it right when we had to go back? Why can't we go to an open? Why can't we do it in Baltimore? No program. in another school. I know. I think all our lives going to be bad in it. And here we have a final prescient question asked by one of the youth from the Baraka School. Why can't we do this program here in Baltimore? The answer is, of course, that black people had been doing very similar programs in Baltimore for decades. Black people had been doing actual rites of passage using African intellectual and spiritual methodologies as a form of human development and youth development in Baltimore. Historically in Baltimore, these African-centered rites of passage programs would not and did not receive funding from the philanthropic establishment. The exact same philanthropic establishment that funded Boys of Baraka. They refused to fund black elders, those who were often critical of the white saviorism and paternalism of the philanthropic sector. The people like 
Joanne and Elmer Martin were the exact people frozen out of the human social service sector in Baltimore for not acquiescing to the methodological demands, the scientific objectivity, the integrationist impulses of the philanthropic sector here in Baltimore. Davon provides one specific example, the man who actually funded the Boys of Baraka School to reflect this methodology and this dynamic. There was a move away from institutions that socialized our people being led by black people to the human social service sector taking up the responsibilities that were once black people doing ourselves. And over the past 50 to 60 years, white folks and their institutions have demonstrated their impotence in their ability to produce outcomes. And in no other context would folks who have failed so abysmally at a thing would continue to be resourced and continue to be seen as thought leaders in an area where they fail so miserably. And one of the people that we name in the black paper is a gentleman named Bob Embry, who is the president of the Abel Foundation. He's been around a very long time. He won a city council seat in the 1960s. He then was asked by then Mayor Schaefer to work in the housing department. And there are several books that I've read about Baltimore where there are people who asked, by, who asked the author not to be named in the quote that they give about their criticisms of Bob Embry because they perceive him to be that powerful. They perceive him and his ability to essentially isolate folks from the sector. And I've heard people tell stories about the fact that he saw himself as this kingmaker that has that level of control over institutions that socialize black people. As a person who actually, at one point, he was the chair of the school board, the Baltimore City School Board. And he has no formal or informal credential to be an authority on the socialization of black people. He has a law degree from Harvard, right? And so that's as much as he knows about anything as it relates to our community, right? He, he is not demi Now he knows a lot about some of the data, the data that points to notions of pathology. So he may be able to tell you the unemployment rate, right? Or the number of vacant houses in Baltimore, some of the data on public safety. But in terms of talking comprehensively about black people, or history or culture, our methodologies, our institutions, he's not qualified to be in a position as a thought leader. And that's not being said for the purpose of not liking him personally. I don't know him very much personally. And in fact, I had a conversation with him in his office where I raised some of these points. And he was rather hospitable about it. We were clear that we didn't agree. And so this isn't out of any personal animus towards him as an individual. But it's like anything else. If you're not qualified to do it, it doesn't make sense for you to be in thought leadership. And it's not aggressive or mean or anything else to make that statement. And I would argue with the human social service sector, there are lots of people like Bob Embry who are in positions of thought leadership who are not qualified to be there and are never asked publicly to substantiate why they're qualified to be there. In fact, you have a lot of people in the human social service sector who are in positions of leadership who I would argue are not only not qualified, but I wouldn't want them anywhere near children. But they're allowed to be there because there are not mechanisms of public accountability such that they can be taken down, right? And, that, and so a part of where I end that with the paper is both the acknowledgement of the failure of the thought leadership that's currently in the status quo, but also about the importance of black people ourselves outside of the, the scope of the sector, developing who we want to designate as thought leaders in particular industries in the human social service sector.
so that the billions of resources that attract into that sector can be put to good use and can be put to helping to build solutions to our problems that are not mired in the notion of black folks having to be dependent on people outside of our community. And so the confrontation has to be such that we have to be able to put forward folks. And there are lots of people in our community who could serve as those thought leaders, but are just not given the opportunity to serve in those roles with the level of freedom necessary. Some years later, asked about the perceived limitations and failure of the Baraka School, Robert Bob Embry had only one response. He wished that they had the money to produce 10 more Baraka schools. Thank you for listening to In Search of Black Power. I'm your host, Lawrence Grand Prix. In Search of Black Power is a product of New Timbuktu. You can find our podcast, our written materials, and the black paper, When Baltimore Awakes, at our website, newtimbuktu.com. In Search of Black Power is sponsored by you, our listeners and supporters. You can find more about giving us a small monthly contribution, joining what we call our sustainers program at newtimbuktu.com or you can visit the homepage of the sponsoring organization that puts on New Timbuktu and In Search of Black Power, Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, at lbsbaltimore.com. Happy New Year to all of you out there. We appreciate you listening to us for this past year. January, February, March, and April are very busy months for us here in Baltimore. It is the Maryland State Legislative Session. So for those four months, every law in the state of Maryland is passed. So we're going to be at our state capitol in Annapolis doing as much work as we can in addition to continuing to write and trying to produce the podcast. So we are going to figure out a production schedule that we hope will be consistent and respect of all the work that everyone else is doing in our organization. So as we figure out our details and our logistics, we hope that you stick with us. We will tell you what our production schedule will be, but we will be back and we will continue with you, of course, to go in search of Black Power. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.